The Word of God from Matthew 5 and Matthew 7. Jesus is preaching during the Sermon on the Mount. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, because he was teaching them like one who had authority, and not like their scribes. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I would encourage you now to take a copy of the scriptures and turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew 5 through 7. I once again did not look to see what page it was. Go ahead. 858 uh, in the Bible underneath the seat in front of you if you do not have a copy uh, of the scriptures. By the way, if you don't have a copy uh, for your your own copy of the scriptures, why don't you just take that underneath the seat in front of you home today and uh, use that as your Bible, enjoy it, and uh, learn more about who Jesus says he is. Matthew chapter 5. Three simple words as we begin our time together that will govern the structure of this sermon. Astonishment, authority, and alternative. Astonishment, authority, and alternative. So let's begin at the end, specifically the end of Jesus' sermon. I want you to hear again the reaction of Jesus' hearers to his sermon from chapter 7, verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. Reactions to the teaching and claims of Jesus are often revealing. Here, the reaction is astonishment. The word means to be amazed to the point of being overwhelmed, to be terribly shocked, to be astounded. Now, this won't be the last time you see this reaction to Jesus if you read through the Gospels. In fact, you'll find it over a half a dozen times. In fact, in Mark 11, it is the amazement, the astoundedness of the crowds that will actually cause the religious leaders to plot the assassination of Jesus. That in the minds of the religious leaders was the only way to deal with such a radical teacher who would not submit to their authority. Perhaps you've noticed in your lifetime the change in reaction to the claims of Jesus in the Western world. Once upon a time in the Western world, Christian morality and the Christian message was assumed Any deviation from the moral ethic which we see in the Bible and which the Bible calls us to would have been seen as outside of morality, immorality. Elements of the culture might still engage in it, sure, but on the whole, 
the Christian morality of Scripture was assumed. But slowly that attitude changed and the Christian message and morality became tolerated. And you can probably hear in that word tolerate a cooling attitude. Christianity and the life it offers became simply one option to choose from among the many in order to live your life. One of the ethical structures that you could decide upon to govern your life. Truth became something other than absolute. You could have your truth and I could have my truth. You live your truth, I'll live my truth. And Christian morality and the Christian message was simply tolerated as one of the buffet options on the truth buffet. But slowly, as the moral smorgasbord grew to include options that look like absolute freedom, but instead lead to destruction, the Christian message and morality became questioned. Is Christianity really good for the world? Like, is it? Is the Christian sexual ethic, for example, really healthy or does it actually reflect an outmoded and outdated puritanism that just ought to be rejected wholesale? But the cultural change we have all felt in the last decade or two is that rather than being assumed or tolerated or questioned, the Christian message and morality is now often viewed as oppressive, dangerous, Christian morality looks to some like slavery, bondage. It's the next obstacle that has to be overcome for mankind to be truly free. Now such a movement away from Christianity shouldn't surprise us. And it shouldn't frighten us. All of us, or rather all of these are responses or reactions to the authority claims of Christianity in the last half century or so. And in our text, when Jesus finishes what was arguably the most influential and famous of his sermons, the crowd's reaction was astonishment. But why? Why in context were the crowds astonished? Well, this brings us to our second word, the word authority. Matthew 7, 28, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority. Let me paint a picture for you, if I may, and then I'm going to ask you a question based on the picture. And this may help us to understand the astonishment of the crowds in their context. So here's the picture. A man comes up out of Egypt. The man wanders in the wilderness for a period of 40. That man passes into, through, and out of the water. The voice of God speaks to and about this man. This man then stands on a mountain and proclaims a law from God. So here's the question. Of whom am I speaking? 
Moses or Jesus? The answer is yes. All of the descriptions accurately describe Moses, the greatest and most revered prophet of the Jewish nation, the lawgiver par excellence, the deliverer unlike any other. And yet they describe Jesus, this man with no earthly human father who comes from a backwater town with no education to speak of. You see, God had promised to Israel in Deuteronomy 18 that he would send a prophet like Moses, and he told them that they must listen to him. So Matthew begins his gospel by telling the story of Jesus as the new lawgiver and as the true Israel. Just like Moses and Israel went down and came up out of Egypt, young Jesus enters and comes up out of Egypt while women weep for their dead children. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. Just like Moses and Israel passed through the Red Sea on their way to the promised land, so Jesus passes through the waters of baptism. Matthew 3, 13 to 17. Just like Moses and Israel wandered in the wilderness for a period of 40 and are tempted and fail, so Jesus wanders through the wilderness for a period of 40 and is tempted, but he overcomes the tempter. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. And just like Moses goes up onto a mountain and receives the law of God and proclaims that law to the people of God, so Jesus is going up on a mountain and proclaiming a new law that he's received from God. Matthew 5 through 7. But Matthew's not done. He is then going to take Five different teachings of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount being the first of those five, and he's going to group them together and place them strategically in the book to parallel the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. Why is Matthew telling the story this way? Well, as the Bible Project says, to signal that Jesus is continuing the rescue work God started long ago. When he brought Israel out of Egypt. Friends, if we are to enter into the depth of boldness, and if I may use the word impudence of what Matthew is doing in portraying Jesus this way, and what Jesus himself is doing in this sermon, that will help us come to grips with the astonishment of his hearers. And allow us to feel a bit of that astonishment ourselves. Jesus is coming as the prophet like Moses that was foretold, who is determined to lead his people out of a bondage far more oppressive than the chains of Egypt or of Rome. He's intending to lead his people out of the bondage of sin itself. But to do so, he has to demonstrate both to the religious leaders and to his listeners that how they have been hearing and interpreting the law is wrong. He will tell them he hasn't come to abolish the law. Rather, he's come to fulfill it, to bring it to completion. And so, like Big Ben chiming out the hour of noon over the city of London, 
Jesus' words would have rung loud and clear in the ears of his hearers. Jesus' authority is demonstrated in his engagement with the Torah, the Mosaic Law. Rabbis in teachers or teachers in Jesus' day would have lectured on the Torah by listing what other individuals throughout history had said about it. So-and-so says this, and so-and-so interprets it this way, and this writing says this about this portion of the law, and oh yeah, this guy said that, but not Jesus. 5.21, you have heard it said to our ancestors, do not murder, but I tell you, Verse 27, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce, but I tell you, verse 33, again, you've heard it that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but I tell you, verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your enemy, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, authority, bold, unflinching, unhesitating authority. In fact, it's the sort of authority you would expect from a king proclaiming the arrival of a new kind of kingdom. But it's not the sort of authority you would expect from a carpenter's son from Nazareth. He lines up statement after statement. Statements that are either a direct quote from the Mosaic Law or a direct quote from an interpretation of the Mosaic Law. Lines them up one by one and he's saying, let me tell you what it really means. Let me tell you how you ought to be understanding it. Let me declare to you how your external religion falls short of the holiness God calls you to. You see, the law Moses gave, the Torah, couldn't change hearts. And through Jeremiah and through Ezekiel, God promised Israel in the new covenant exactly that. Changed hearts. An ability to obey the law with the law written on hearts. And this new covenant with the law of God written on our hearts and the spirit of God indwelling us, empowering us to obey it. That is precisely what Jesus came to inaugurate. His blood would seal the covenant. And his spirit would give new hearts to those who by faith trust in him. So obedience could no longer be reduced to mere externalism. Loving God and loving neighbor, the two greatest commands, can no longer be limited to merely behavioral categories. Do this. Don't do this. Rather, those categories go far deeper to the heart because Jesus gives his spirit so that we might love God supremely from our hearts and love our neighbors as ourselves. Friends, Jesus is the greater than Moses lawgiver. And he's the mediator of a better covenant than Moses was.
and we can obey these teachings of Jesus only when the Spirit of God indwells us and we, united, we are united by faith to Jesus. Jesus himself is going to say something very close to that in chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And drive out demons in your name? And do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. See, Jesus doesn't say he'll correct those who mistakenly claim he is Lord. No, he implicitly accepts their acknowledgement that he is master and judge on the day of God's justice. And his warning is this, just because you serve me now doesn't mean you are rightly related to me. It goes far deeper than the externals. That was quite a warning to a crowd full of religious people. Standing there on the mountainside hearing Jesus. But friends, it's quite a warning to a church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, isn't it? It's about more than the externals. Maybe you've grown up in a religious culture and you're used to hearing these claims of Jesus from this sermon. And if you are, you and I are at a bit of a disadvantage. Because for us, these statements have been hedged and qualified and repeated and twisted so that they no longer surprise us. They might not elicit more than a yawn from us. But if we are able to let the wind of the Spirit clear away the cultural haze then we are in a position to hear the sermon as the first hearers heard it. Jesus is calling for willing and obedient followers. You see, simply praying a prayer doesn't make one a Christian. Simply going to church doesn't make one a Christian. Simply being baptized doesn't make one a Christian. When God's grace opens the eyes of human beings for the first time to see their sin against the backdrop of his glory, nothing will ever be the same. Because God's grace to you in Jesus changes everything. As Augustus' top lady wrote, when the citadel of the human heart is taken by grace, the enemy's colors are displaced. Satan's usurped authority is superseded the standard of the cross is erected on the walls and the spiritual rebel takes the vow of willing allegiance to Christ. I wonder if you've thought about your salvation in those terms. That's the authority of Jesus. Astonishment. Authority. Number three, alternative. The crowds were astonished at his teaching, verse 28, because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. 
the scribes of the day were the caretakers of the law and its interpretation. They were the route you had to travel to get to the authority of the law. But the people noticed something different with Jesus. He was altogether different from those who they were used to looking to for answers. He was altogether different from those to whom they normally took their questions on faith and life. He was different because he wasn't himself going to search out the answers. He was himself claiming to be the source of all of the answers. The origin of the law. The fulfiller of the law. He was an alternative unlike any they had ever come across. Some who hear the Sermon on the Mount today are able to hear it with the same surprise and astonishment as their original audience, or as his original audience. They see it as an unattractive alternative way to live. Virginia. was assigned the Sermon on the Mount to her freshman English class, or rather that she assigned the Sermon on the Mount to her freshman English class to read. She was in Texas at the time, and part of the Bible Belt, she assumed that she would be ready for the responses she received, but she was not. One student wrote, there's an old saying that you shouldn't believe everything you read, and it applies in this case. Another student said, I did not like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. Another student wrote, The things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman is adultery? That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. Professor Owens reflected, this was the real thing, a pristine response to the gospel unfiltered through a two-millennial cultural haze. In fact, the anger was preferable to the blithe dismissal of the text I found in other papers. I wonder if the spirit in these moments is refusing to allow you to blithely dismiss Jesus and his sermon. So friend, lean into that discomfort. Whom or what has become your authority for living? And let's not kid ourselves. You have some authority for living. No man is totally free unto himself. You have bought into some kind of authority, even if it's the aphorism, be your own authority. You have listened and submitted to the voices declaring that they have become your authority, even as they deceive you into thinking you are your own authority. No, you're not your own authority. You're submitting to the authority that says you should be your own authority. But for others in this room, it's your religious tradition or the moral framework given to you by your parents. Or maybe your authority is some vague moral compass that you follow when it seems to fit and then ignore when something more attractive appears. Or maybe your authority has become news sites with certain 
ideological bents. Like that would ever happen, right? Or political personalities with a particular axe to grind. What they say goes. And everything else is, oh, I don't know, fake news. But friends, Jesus is ascending the mount. And he's opening his mount. And he's declaring a new kingdom is, there, is near and therefore a new king is near. The old, the normal human frameworks of money and sex and power where the rich and the powerful call the shots and the rest deal with the consequences, that old is passing away. The message he declares offers an alternative to the watered-down Weak, loud-mouthed, boisterous, obscene authorities our culture holds out. Professor Owens made this final observation on her students' responses to the Sermon on the Mount. Quote, As Western civilization expends what little biblical capital it has left, we may find ourselves living impoverished, not in just the postmodern age, but in the new barbarism, a sort of fluorescent dark age, like the inside of a mall. On the other hand, those who dream of something brighter than fluorine and neon to illuminate their lives may by these living words be lured outdoors into the true light. Friends, this sermon by itself, this sermon on the mount by itself, it's not good news. It's law. And on its own, it's impossible. It's crushing. It's damning. But friends, don't just hear the words. Hear the preacher. Don't just see the sermon. See the king of this upside down kingdom. The king who is graciously luring us outdoors into the true light. The king whose authority is vastly more attractive and a more beautiful authority than any other you will ever find. The king who perfectly fulfills his own law on behalf of those who embrace their powerlessness to obey it. The king who then will empower the obedience he expects by his spirit for all who by grace through faith embrace him as the king of the upside down kingdom life. And friends, if we do that, if we see the king behind this upside-down kingdom, if we see Jesus as the true preacher of this sermon, then we'll want to exalt with John Newton and insert our own name in the process. Run, Isaiah, and work, the law commands. 
yet finds me neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings. It bids me fly, and it gives me wings. Or in the words of Augustus Top Lady, Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood which from thy riven side flowed be of sin the double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All could never sin atone. Thou must save and thou alone. So nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. So while I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Church, may God grant us the repentance and faith to embrace his grace through Jesus as the doorway to this wonderful, beautiful, upside-down kingdom life. Let's pray together. Our Father, Son, and Spirit, we acknowledge our extreme poverty, our extreme inability and powerlessness to obey apart from your grace. And Father, we praise you for pouring out your grace upon us through Jesus Christ. For in him providing a sacrifice that can atone for the worst and vilest of sinners, the most heinous and shameful of crimes. Father, this is the scandal of your grace. So, Father, as we walk through this Sermon on the Mount, would you, by your Spirit, give us grace both to claim and agree with you that we are powerless to obey and in the very next breath exalt in you that you have empowered us by your Spirit to obey. And so may the Lord Jesus Christ receive all the glory and all the honor and all the adoration and worship that he so rightly deserves as the one who has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into his own kingdom. And for the one or two or five or ten in this room who have never replaced or placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, would you in these moments draw them, lure them by your spirit into the pure, clear light of your word. And we pray this in his worthy, holy, precious name. Amen.